California has long held the title as champion of the environment. What's the state done to deserve this reputation? And is the rest of the country following in its footsteps? Welcome to Climate One, changing the conversation about energy, economy, and the environment. Climate One conversations are recorded before a live audience and hosted by Greg Dalton. I'm Claire Schoen. California, land of sunshine and seashore. In an effort to protect the state's magnificent landscape, California has led the country in environmental action. It established strong automobile emission standards. It preserved fragile lands from development. But as climate change fuels megafires across the state and sea level rise threatens the coast, is California doing enough, fast enough? Greg Dalton explores California's leadership and legacy with three distinguished guests. Huey Johnson is founder of the Trust for Public Land and former California Secretary of Natural Resources. He currently runs the Resource Renewal Institute. Jason Mark is editor of Sierra Magazine and author of the book Satellites in the High Country, Searching for the Wild in the Age of Man. And David Vogel is author of the new book California Greenin, How the Golden State Became an Environmental Leader. He's Professor Emeritus of Business and Politics at the University of California, Berkeley. Here's Greg. David Vogel, California's been first in a lot of environmental efforts, starting in 1947 with their first state air pollution law. Tell us some other important measures that California established that then went across the country. Well, it was the first uh, unit in the United States to regulate automobile emissions, which began in California and then became national and spread to other states. Um, energy efficiency for appliances began in California and became national. Um, energy efficient building codes began in California and became national. Uh, the Coastal Initiative played a very important role in creating uh, both national and local uh, coastal management practices throughout the United States. So California, um, from beginning in the 1860s, uh, by protecting Yosemite has long been on almost every dimension uh, uh, the environmental leader in the United States. Great, and we'll drill down into some of those topics. Huey Johnson, um, you founded the Trust for Public Land, an organization that then grew across the United States. One day you were walking by a park in San Francisco. There were some elderly Chinese people exercising, uh, and that was an inspiration. Tell us that story. Well, I had an early morning meeting, and I was walking by Washington Square with a city official to, to go to the meeting. And a lot of people were out there exercising. And he stopped and he said, that's their living room. And uh, I said, oh, and we kept going. And I, but I remembered that it really made an impact on me. So I started a thing called the Trust for Public Land and it would have an urban emphasis. And my first office I opened well, was in Oakland. The next one was in Newark in a minority community, and we went around and had great success. We went to the banks and the savings and loans companies and said, you've got all these properties you're foreclosed on in these areas. If you give them to us, we can give you a tax credit. Otherwise, you're never going to get anything from them. So we got a whole bunch of properties and established community gardens, schools, housing, a lot of things. The first property we bought when I started to trust for public land was out at Point Reyes, 
The next one was a huge canyon in L.A. And uh, they've now acquired three million acres in urban se sectors around the country. The Black Panthers were also involved in these early efforts to bring parks. So tell us how you were uh, dealing with uh, national officials in the Nixon administration and the Black Panthers at the same time. Oh, yeah, that's right. Uh, the head of the Zen Center, Richard Baker, was working closely with the Black Panthers, and he was a good friend of mine. He said, why don't you come and meet Huey Newton? I said, well, all right. And we go over there, and we go in an apartment, and there's Newton and a great big guy leaning against the wall with a pistol in his belt, protecting his boss. And Newton, we told him, you could train, I could train some people for you, and they could acquire land. He said, let's do it. So they started coming to my office, and one day... I was, there was a wall and two little conference rooms on each side. In one side was Huey Newton and a bunch of other Black Panthers, and the other side was a group of vice presidents from the Bank of America, all getting the same lecture. And uh, they were a, really a fine outfit. It was sad that society came down so hard on them. They had visions, and I thought, great hope, and were, were nice people. I didn't have any trouble with them. Jason Mark, uh, Huey Johnson talked about working with the Black Panthers and getting them involved in environmentalism, but overall, the environmental groups have had a really difficult time engaging you know, communities of color. Here we are, four white men sitting <coughs> up here talking about this, keenly aware of that. Um, and so tell us about what the Sierra Club or other groups have done to try to you know, reach out to communities of color, because that iconic lone hiker, probably a man with a scraggly beard, walking in the wilderness is, is a really strong image of what it means to be out in nature. Well, I think, first of all, it's important to think about it for, for kind of riffing off of the, the thesis of David's book about things that have started here in California and then expanded. One I do think is the emerging um, people of color leadership within the environmental and the conservation movements. If you look at really the, the, the frontline communities and the, and, the, and, the, and the grassroots leaders in places like Oakland and Richmond and Los Angeles, they're people of color. Again, it's sort of uh, awkward to talk about that with four white guys on the stage, but that is the truth. Now, I don't want to like gild that too much because the truth is that the environmental movement is still heavily white-led um, uh, at the executive level and at the board level, and still you don't have that diverse of, of national staff. Um, that said, I do think the kind of emerging cutting edge of where the Sierra Club is and where other major conservation and environmental groups are is ensuring that the 21st century environmental movement reflects the ethnic diversity of this country, um, and doing that in any number of ways. One is hacking that stereotype, right? So the Sierra Club's Inspiring Connections Outdoors is working with communities nationwide to make those connections. You don't need to go to the very remote wilderness. Like, yes, it's fantastic to go to Yosemite, um, go to Kings Canyon or Death Valley, but there's a lot of virtue in the nearby nature, right? In these urban parks and places like the Golden Gate National Recreation Area or one of our newer national monuments, the San Gabriel Mountains in Los Angeles, right? Where a plurality of people who recreate in the San Gabriel Mountains are Latino families. And so I think it's important to recognize that, yeah, we hold that stereotype, but when I find myself going out backpacking and certainly day hiking and certainly in our state parks, um, a lot of the folks in the front country are people of color and, and are coming from different um, cultural bath backgrounds and different ethnicities. Um, and you see, especially here in California, um, you know, folks bringing their own cultural traditions, especially, let's say, Latino traditions, of not going out like the solo white guy in the wilderness, but going out with your whole family, 
having an asada, having a barbecue out there. That's a lot of what I see at the state parks these days. And I do think um, some of that's being broken down organically, and some of it's because the Sierra Club and other groups are, are making a real deliberate effort and intention there. We're talking about environmentalism in California, around the country, with uh, Jason Mark, editor of Sierra Magazine, Huey Johnson, head of the Resource Renewal Institute, and David Vogel from the University of California at Berkeley. I'm Greg Dalton. David Vogel, in writing the history of environmental leadership in California, is it all white men? Where were there people that, you know, people of color, other communities, you know, were they present? Were they part of it? Well, women certainly had a very big presence. Uh, the, uh, the initiative to protect the Bay uh, came from uh, four women who lived in the Berkeley Hills, um, who were appalled when they learned that the city of Berkeley planned to double its size by expanding into the Bay. And they started a major movement, an environmental movement, to mobilize people throughout the Bay. Um, and eventually, uh, Governor Reagan signed legislation that created the Bay Area Development Authority, the first coastal development authority in the United States, and one of the first in the world. And that's why the Bay uh, has not continued to shrink, and, is, and through its parks and its uh, trails, has become enormously successful to, accessible to everyone who lives in the Bay Area. So this was an extremely democratic impulse uh, to, uh, to basically make sure that the bay would not be uh, filled in and only available to, uh, to property owners. One quick story, the East Bay and the four women who saved the bay, I had just gotten here accepting a job as a Western Regional Director of the Nature Conservancy. I got my office and a little lady came in and she said, can I talk? I said, yes. She says, well, I'm... I'm Oh, I'm going to save the bay, and we're going to save the shoreline over there. <laughs> and I said, oh, that's fine. The shoreline was owned by a railroad, and there were rail cars parked all along it. And I thought, boy, she is, no way that's ever going to happen. Well, she persisted, and it's now named after her. And I think if you look at the Coastal Initiative, that was a very democratic impulse where, you know, most Californians live within 45 minutes of the coast. And by keeping the coast accessible, which is unprecedented, um, this means that all people of, of any um, ethnicity uh, and um, of any income have, have access to, to what is a democratic part of California's heritage. That coastal protection, which is very different on the West Coast than the East Coast. A lot of the East right. Coast is locked up. You can't, there's no public access. It's all privately owned. Uh, we sometimes take for granted this public access. And there's a lot of very high profile lawsuits lately over particular right. billionaires in Silicon Valley trying right, to right, keep right. the surfers off their land. And it is important for all of us to realize that the next challenge is that we have to save the places that have been saved. So where some people would say, there, look, there's new land to be saved, Huey Johnson, you're saying we need, people need to protect what has been saved because it can be unsaved. That's even more important. We pretty much saved the places that need to be saved. And uh, there'll be others, but the places are being lost because there's no defense for them. Right now, the state of California up at Lake Tahoe is going to let a state park become a golf course. And uh, Diane Feinstein is behind it, and she has Goldman Sachs Golf Course Division out in front. And uh, you've really got to fight the bastards. You know, the <laughs> battle is never over. And is that increasing now with, uh, obviously, the Trump administration, Bears Ears, certain oh, yeah. things being rolled back? Jason Mark, have you done reporting on that? 
Yeah, sure. That's it's it's <laughs> awful what the Trump administration is doing to to revoke national monuments that were established lawfully under the Antiquities Act. Greg Dalton is talking about California's leadership in protecting and preserving the environment with Huey Johnson, founder of the Trust for Public Land. Jason Mark, author of the book Satellites in the High Country, Searching for the Wild in the Age of Man. And David Vogel, author of the new book California Greenin', How the Golden State Became an Environmental Leader. Here's your host, Greg Dalton. Huey Johnson, you uh, back in the day, you went to uh, Hawaii, and there's the Hana Seven Sacred Pools. And tell us a story that includes Lawrence Rockefeller, Charles Lindbergh, and Doris Duke. <laughs> there's a place at Hana, the Seven Sacred Pools, so-called. And it's a beautiful series of waterfalls that comes down to the ocean, starts up in the mountains, the crater is 8,000 feet. And there's a canyon with just lush growth in it, a lot of fumaroles from volcanic action. And uh, Lawrence Rockefeller had been to a cocktail party, and a lovely young thing came up and said, Oh, Lawrence, you know that lovely area I told you about? And he said, Yes, my dear. She said, My company owns it, and I fear it's going to be developed. He said, We can't let that happen. I'll call my bank in the morning. And he did and bought it. No further consideration. But then somebody checked the fine print, and she only sold him half. And but charged him for the full bore, of course. And uh, he was embarrassed. Everybody, staff, is going nuts to keep that from leaking out. So I went over and, and bought the other half. And I had to pay a million dollars for the part that I got. And Nature Conservancy had never raised a million dollars for any project. And I didn't dare ask their permission because I know they'd say no. And so I optioned it. And I risked my job and so on, but I thought it was well worth it. I went back to San Francisco, the phone was ringing, Lawrence wants to have lunch with you. Back I went, and uh, we met out by a waterfall, looking up in that canyon. And as I looked up that canyon, just a green wall, Rockefeller says, well, how are we going to raise a million dollars? I said, well, I know one way to do it. (laughs) I said, we'll do it. He said, the Nature Conservancy raise a million dollars? I said, yeah, we'll do it. As I looked up there, there had been 23 rare birds called honey creepers listed as extinct on Maui. And this is a green wall. Nobody had ever been there. And I thought, if there's any place in the world you're going to rediscover an extinct bird, this is going to be it. And I hired a graduate student from Berkeley who was studying ornithology. And they got a couple of cowboys. And in they went with the machetes. And they came out in a week or two, and they had rediscovered several species. And so I had these pictures, and uh, I would show them to people. We had a cocktail party in Honolulu and one in, in San Francisco and so on. And Charles Lindbergh had come out. It was the first speak, speaking he'd done since he'd gone into retirement. And I got him to get up and give a talk. And women with bouffants had been teenagers when he flew, and they were going crazy. They were pulling his sleeves and... And finally, he went like that, and he knocked over the microphone. And he was with us all the way. And we got to New York, and Lawrence Rockefeller invited me to lunch. I got to lunch. There were five of us. He, his wife, Doris Duke, and the owner of the Reader's Digest. And I gave him, showed him my slides, my rediscovered rare birds. And Doris Duke turned to him. She said, Lawrence, this is such a wonderful idea. I'll, I'll give us a quarter of a million dollars. 
And the lady on his other side said, yes, Lawrence, I agree. I'll give a quarter of a million dollars. Well, I was halfway home at lunch. <laughs> <laughs> and that evening, the super affluent, it turns out, do each other favors. Somebody's sponsoring an opera, you donate to his opera, and in turn, you better donate to his thing next time. So, boy, everybody was there that had ever gotten money from the, from the Rockefellers. And I said, okay, I showed my slides, and we got to raise this money. And they took off, and we went by a million dollars so fast, I couldn't write down. They said, Joe Jones, I'll give 50000 and so on. And, and we went way over a million dollars. Really? David Vogel, one of the keys to uh, California leadership that's, that's spread around the country and around the world is the automobiles, 1950s. So tell us about that, that particular era where there was this post-war expansion. So much came out of that era of L.A. in the 50s. Fast food, McDonald's came out of that. Yet there were some real tensions between uh, smog and, and the automobile. Well, L.A. began um, in the uh, 1890s um, as, a, <coughs> as a health resort uh, because it had the best climate because it had no coal. And um, all these people would come to Los Angeles because it had beautiful air and you could uh, be there during the summer without having to worry about um, and needing, not, because there was no air conditioning, it was pleasant. Um, and then, of course, um, L.A., by the 1940s, had the worst air pollution in the, in the United States, and no one could quite figure out why. And in 1949, um, there was a football game at, uh, in, at Cal, uh, Washington State, playing the Cal Bears. And during that day of the game, people along the route of the cars began to experience the same kind of tearing and coughing that characterized smog alerts in Los Angeles. And that was the first inclination, the first idea that cars could be a major source of air pollution. And that started a trajectory uh, that needed to be more research, et cetera. Um, and by the early 60s, um, California understanding that um, cars in uniquely were the major source of pollution in Los Angeles and in California, um, enacted the, um, the country's first automobile emission standards. At one point, the industry tried to argue that, well, it's not cars it's something about L.A. that causes the pollution, right? It's not our cars. It's L.A.'s problem. Yeah, and then they argued this is only a California problem. <laughs> uh, so that was okay. Then it became national. And when New York began to establish its own automobile emission standards, the industry panicked. And they said, okay, we want federal standards. And in 1967, they got Congress for the first time to enact federal standards. And then the question was, what happens to California standards? And the state was very worried that, of course, the federal standards would be laxer than in California. And California has a unique problem in that no other state had much, has so much air pollution caused by cars. And there was a huge battle in Congress. Uh, it was very, very close because the industry wanted national standards. The federal government wanted national standards. And a uh, very famous story, Bobby Kennedy of New York went to uh, the California Republican senators and said, look, you guys are going to lose. Um, you need to make this a state's rights issue and get the southern racist Democrats to vote on California's side. <laughs> and that was successful. And that is why California, since 67, has had an exemption, um, which has gone on now, over 100 exemptions, uh, which for the very first time in American history, the Trump administration is now trying to take away. 
And so the, the Trump administration, which nominally supports states' rights, is trying to say California can't set more stringent air quality, uh, actually fuel efficiency standards, which was one of the pillars of really the Paris Climate Accord. Right, right. Because that really led the U.S. into Paris. So what's at stake there? Is this going to be drawn out in court for a long time? Because the, the yeah, Trump administration I mean, it's very is going- consequential because um, auto- curbing automobile emissions is very critical to California climate change goals, greenhouse gas emission goals, and to air quality. We're driving more and more, and the only way to keep air quality and greenhouse emissions under control is to have better uh, better pollution controls, including electric cars. So this is a very serious issue, and we'll see how it plays out. What's but industry's position? Does industry want this? Um, the industry's nightmare, of course, is that they relax federal standards, which they can do, and California keeps its exemption, and thus we have a two-tier car market. California in 13 states, one kind of cars, the rest, another kind of federal standards. That's the nightmare for the industry. So um, there's a lot of drama going on. I just want to point out, David said something really important there. It's not just California. It's California and 13 other states. And this gets back again to the thesis of David's book, which is that California being a leader and really leading from the front. So other states under that system in the Clean Air Act are able to also then move up to California standards. Right. Um, and you've got other states, Colorado, others yeah, that are also making a lot of noise, yeah. Yeah. Um, saying that they're going to also use their attorneys general to fight this as well. So it's, it's, it's going to be a years-long process. I think, would, I think it's fair to say it would eventually go to the Supreme Court, perhaps. I mean, it's a real yeah. no, a federal has, tension issue. Yeah, it has, you're right. And you're absolutely right. It has major consequences because in 1977, uh, the federal government uh, gave states the right to choose California or federal standards. And so that many of them have chose, chosen to adopt them. But the current fuel economy standards are pretty much national standards. Uh, a compromise worked out with the Obama administration. And so... Um, uh, having dual standards would be a big, big deal. You know, one industry we didn't mention, we got to mention, is, is the organic agriculture industry, which certainly I think is based here and born here out of California. You think about the new, the sort of good food movement sparked by um, Alice Waters and then folks like Michael Pollan. I mean, Michael Pollan's got East Coast roots and the good food movement came out of other places, but... Earthbound our, farms started... Yeah, our, our, our food and agriculture industry and the landscape of what that looks like and the and the, and the sort of cultural player, if not a huge market player, but the cultural player and the cultural force of the organic movement, that started here in California and it spread to the whole country. Yeah, so culture out of Hollywood, culture out of Silicon Valley, food for sure. If you're just joining us, we're talking about California's leadership on climate and other environmental policies with David Vogel, Professor Emeritus from the University of California, Berkeley, Jason Mark, editor of Sierra Magazine, and Huey Johnson, head of the Resource (coughs) Renewal Institute. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, Jason Mark, tell us there's been some uh, suits lately where counties in California have tried to sue the oil company saying you're at fault for selling oil that is causing our shores to erode and causing climate change. Yeah, so this is, I think, probably right now that among the sharpest points of the spear in terms of the kind of grassroots climate movement is now 13 different cities and counties across the U.S. and one state, Rhode Island, have now sued the major oil companies and coal and gas companies, you know, big oil, 
And those suits started here in California. Now, again, that since spread, you've got lawsuits from three um, Colorado jurisdictions, King County, Washington, City of Baltimore, and uh, State of Rhode Island. Now, some of those suits have gotten tossed out. The suit from San Francisco and Oakland that was in federal court was tossed out in the New York City uh, suit, also in federal court, was tossed out. But you still have all these state suits. And, and, and I think these, these towns and, and counties are very much committed to, to, to push these as far as they can. And while it is sort of a, an issue of numbers, it is important for, I think, more cities to sign on to these suits will present more of a threat um, to, the, to the major carbon polluters. You only need one to, to actually get the green light and go into discovery, and then things are going to get very uncomfortable for the oil companies and the oil and gas companies as then litigators are able to go in and request their internal documents, which, which presents the threat of them sort of repeating the path of big tobacco and being really publicly revealed. But the oil industry response was very interesting. What they said to these uh, counties was, when you issued municipal bonds for your sewer plant or your roads, you also underestimated and covered up the climate risk to their sure. investors. A lot of people are hiding climate risk. The insurance <laughs> industry is hiding climate risk. Uh, the, you know, every real estate agent in Miami Beach is hiding climate <laughs> risk. Um, I mean, these things are going to come to a head when the horizon of the 30-year mortgage starts to run up against very serious flooding um, and sea level rise. And some of that property is, is here in California, though I think the East Coast is probably in bigger trouble on that. David Vogel, there are a lot of examples in your book where business was pursuing self-interest or the, you know, the railroads wanted uh, forests to be preserved for one reason or another. What are some examples where business got out in front and saw something happening and kind of, you know, rather than there's sort of the rear guard defense, but are there examples where business got out, out in front of a change rather than waiting for it? Yeah, I, the, real, the real fascinating part of the California story, and I think a key to California's environmental leadership, has been the support of business in so many places at so many stages. Yosemite, for example, was protected at the initiative of the steamship industry, which wanted to encourage tourists to come to California uh, and visit Yosemite. Uh, the big supporter of, the, of protecting and expanding the national parks in the Sequoias and the Sierras um, was the Southern Pacific Railway which wanted people to come to California um, and visit the trees. Um, the drive to curb automobile emissions in LA was driven by the Los Angeles real estate community, which feared that unless air quality improved, people wouldn't continue to go to LA and their whole business model would end. Uh, the drive to get rid of um, oil drilling off the beaches of Southern California was driven by uh, Southern California um, real estate de uh, tourist developers who wanted that to be a pleasant area. So that's throughout California's history, uh, you have businesses on both sides and alliances between citizen groups and businesses have, have been central to California's environmental leadership. And you see this now, of course, in climate change, where you have Tesla, a huge clean tech sector, a huge renewable industry sector. You, know, you have a whole segment of the business community um, which has a financial stake in um, moving California forward on climate change regulation. Huey Johnson, have you seen that business support in trying to, trying to save land? Or uh, a lot of the lands, there's one particular story where some of the land you saved was owned by uh, Gulf Oil, I believe, at one point, the yeah. north of the San Francisco Golden Gate Bridge, right? Um, so your take on, on you know, corporations, you know, are they at both sides of this? Have they been uh, helpful in conserving land, or does it depend on the, the situation? The only reason we are able to get private business to cooperate is a tax advantage. 
and it's entirely legal and healthy. Um, the, the IRS lets you get a huge break if you donate, you as an individual, or you as a corporation. Uh, piece of land is for sale for $100. I go in as a nonprofit and I said, well, it may be 100 but I'll tell you what, I'll give you 70 and the tax credits, you'll end up with the same amount of money. E.O. E. Wilson uh, has the uh, famous uh, naturalist at, at Harvard, has the idea, Huey Johnson, of saving half of the land in the world. He says half the land ought to be set aside. <clears throat> um, some people say, well, it's ambitious, might be done. What do you think about that? Is it desirable or is that distracting from what you say is we ought to, that people ought to yeah. defend lands that are already nominally protected? He misses a very key point called population. Mm. Uh, and nobody wants to talk about it, but it's the elephant in the room. And uh, I remember even a wonderful friend we had, a woman was named Wangari Matai. She was Kenyan. She became the first recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize. First environmental recipient, yeah, perhaps. Yeah, that's right, yeah. And I helped her start in the U.S. We, had her, we ran her affairs here in San Francisco. And she used to say, I'm telling you, somebody better wake up and see what's happening in Africa. The population's exploding, and it's going to sooner or later be a huge problem. And you're seeing it right now in the Mediterranean. People trying to bail out of there. Not enough to eat. The collapse of not enough to eat, collapse of small scale agriculture. Uh, Jason Mark, Sierra Club, uh, also it's population, also a touchy issue in the Sierra Club's history. You know, zero population growth. Where is the Sierra Club now on population? I think the Sierra Club is committed to the idea that if uh, that certainly if we want to stabilize human population growth, the key to doing that is is women's empowerment. You look at Paul Hawkins' new book Drawdown, and he sort of tries to list you know what are the most important tactics and strategies for arresting the amount of greenhouse gases we're putting into the atmosphere and then drawing those down. And four of the top 10 strategies involve um, reproductive rights for women and education for girls. Um, and so essentially, we're never going to be able to really wrap our arms around this issue of, of unsustainable population growth and to stabilize in a humane fashion uh, the human population of this planet unless all women on this planet have got the rights to control how many children they want to have. I had a, a privilege, an opportunity one time to speak very briefly with Malala, and I said to her with my 10-year-old daughter at my side saying, Malala, what you're doing is really important for the climate, and she kind of was, looked startled, like climate, she didn't think of herself as a climate advocate, but you know, empowering, educating girls is the number one thing, you know, to affect fertility rates. And she's like, she kind of thought like, oh, okay, I guess I am a climate person. And, you know, she's not thought, she's not thought of that way, but she most, most certainly is. You're listening to Climate One. Greg Dalton is talking about California's impact on the nation's move towards sustainability with Huey Johnson, former California Secretary of Natural Resources, Jason Mark, editor of Sierra Magazine, and David Vogel, Professor Emeritus of Business and Politics at the University of California, Berkeley. Here's Greg. Jason Mark, uh, the Los Angeles River is being brought back to life. I went to college in Los Angeles and never really knew that that big cement trench was a river. <laughs> I just thought it was a place where they shot you know, television commercials and right. maybe, maybe Terminator films. Yeah, Terminator films and, and maybe skateboarders. That's coming back. It's really a kind of an urban success story, but it's also pushing some gentrification. Well, yeah, I mean, I think this is kind of to, to Huey's work. Um, when you create more green space in cities, it makes it more livable 
and therefore more valuable. And so the tension is how do you increase that quality of life without pushing out the communities and the families that have long called that place home. I mean, in our story about the Los Angeles River, I think Eric, uh, Mayor Eric Garcetti, uh, who we interviewed for the piece, makes a pretty good case that, listen, we need to both have affordable housing and green space. These, these should not be in tent with each other. And in fact, the market forces that are making places like Los Angeles or the Bay Area unaffordable and unaccessible, that will happen anyway, regardless or not if we have green space. So the, the question is, how do you create more green space and not have it be a driver of those unfortunate um, increases in making places unaffordable. But I don't think they necessarily need to be attention. And in fact, I mean, what if we want to have green for all, if we want to have equity in the environmental and conservation movements to ensure that everybody, regardless of race, ethnicity, income, has got the same access to open space, green space, and wild space, we have to make sure that we can continue to push that goal without, again, it sort of having this other market effect. Uh, Huey Johnson, you spent a lot of time with uh, with David Brower. Tell us about him. He's, you know, he's one of the um, radical, really environmentalists, you know, <clears throat> leader of the Sierra Club. He was a, such a remarkable human being, and we miss him desperately. When he ran the Sierra Club, boy, it was going. They didn't. You talk about population. He just nailed it. There was no, or whatever. And it's tough. Institutions grow. And leaders are rare. Abraham Lincoln was one. Dave Brower was another. And uh, do you see th- it sad. Do you think that the Sierra Club has gotten soft since his time and for reasons because of its business model, because it needs to raise so much money? Well, that's got to be one reason, I think, for the headquarters to be in San Francisco of an environmental organization. My own organization's case in point. Real estate is so expensive. We're in Oakland now. for that reason for that reason we were going to have a literally one million dollar uh nearly one million dollar annual rent increase yeah so an icon moved out to oakland but you think that the need for money softens activism well i think that the loss the decline of passion is bigger when you got somebody like brower who's leading the charge or i mentioned wangari matai in kenya when there was a problem, she went right up. The dictator ordered the women to be taken out of a park. She went right up to a gun barrel, poked a kid that was holding it in uniform, said, you go home to your mother. <clears throat> I, I don't get a sense that the environmental movement in, Cal- in California has lost its pizzazz, its impact, um, its militancy. I, I think it plays, continues to play a very important role in shaping state policy. Um, uh, uh, it's, it's legacy back, you know, from 1892, founded by John Muir. I think it remains a very um, important presence, as do many other environmental organizations I mean, uh, in the state of California. Last time I checked, we just took out the EPA administrator. So I think we're doing pretty good. Although uh, his number two is not that different. Sure. Uh, sure. Yeah, there. Some would say the environmental movement, uh, J.C. Mark, is radical and anti-business and holding California back. I think I think the the environmental movement is a big tent, and I think it includes a lot of people who identify or come to environmentalism or conservation from many different doors, and that's what you want. Um, and so, yes, yeah, some people are going to be on the 
radical anti-capitalist fringe and some people are like the the you know the nature conservancy of today working very closely with dow chemical and the question is how do you kind of hold that space for people of common vision common values to work toward a more or less shared goal and recognize that it it requires many different tactics and strategies in many different approaches. And so I think that's the, that's the challenge right now, in, including, I think, for a big, what would be called a big green group like the Sierra Club, you know, where it's certainly um, a significant, I think, force within the movement. And at the same time, we've continued, I think, to hold on to our grassroots edge because we are a democratic organization um, where the members elect the board of directors. Rare among um, environmental groups. Have, and, and we really are member-led. I mean, all of our, our chapters nationwide um, and our multiple chapters here in California have a high degree of autonomy and influence. Michael Brune, the executive director of the Sierra Club, cannot tell the Bay Chapter necessarily what to do. The Bay Chapter has a huge amount of autonomy in deciding what its priorities are, what's it, what it's going to push after. And I think that grassroots element still gives us a lot of force and passion. Thank you. Can I just make one comment on, you know, business elites have been an important part of the environmental story in this state. And, you know, my favorite example is William Kent, um, who donated the land uh, which would have um, been seized by a water company um, uh, to the federal government to protect it. Um, and uh, Roosevelt accepted it, and um, he said, we want to name these, these woods after you and your wife for this incredibly generous gift, which had no tax benefits because there was not income tax then. And, um, and Ken said, no, uh, I want it named after the president of the Sierra Club, John Muir. And we have Muir Woods because a rich Californian cared about the environment, and we well, all benefit from that. There are wonderful examples Every place. You've got the Rockefeller family gave Jackson Hole to National Park, for instance, and took no credit. Yeah, particularly. Yeah, yeah. In the Nature Conservatives case, they got a new president. He was from Goldman Sachs. And he was on the national board of the Petroleum Institute when he took the job. Hardly a candidate for environmental credits. Let's go to our questions. Welcome to Climate One. Thank you. My name is Lila Holzman. My question is something I have a hard time wrapping my head around sometimes, which is, is proving that it can be done and hoping that other states follow suit an effective way to think about this? Or should we be trying to, you know, bring other states along with us? And to that extent, like the proposal that's um, being debated right now on uh, regionalizing our grid and whether or not that's actually going to be a good thing, but do we need to bring others with us? How do, how do you guys think about that? Thank you. Yeah. We'd like to tackle that. California has had a hard time um, bringing other states within it. The original um, cap and trade system was supposed to be a regional system and fell apart. Everyone left it other than California. I think the major way in which California influences and affects other states is by getting it right, by being innovative and showing that climate change initiatives um, and protecting the environment can be done in a way that's, that's consistent with economic growth. And I think it's leading by example, which is very critical. I mean, California has all these incredibly ambitious goals on climate change. Everyone is watching to see how it plays out. If it collapses the economy, or if these goals are simply unachievable without sacrificing economic growth, that will set back climate change initiatives. If these goals are successfully met in an economically efficient manner, um, 
other states and governments around the world will then have the incentive to follow. So everyone's watching California very carefully and to see how well it does. I was going to say, it seems to me if the President of the United States has given up on American exceptionalism, then we need California exceptionalism. Right. Um, and that essentially, I think, is what... Yeah. Um, I think that's what the, the state leaders are trying to do as best they can. We're talking with uh, Dave Vogel, Jason Mark, and Huey Johnson at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Let's go to our next question. Welcome to Climate One. Uh, one thing we haven't talked too much about tonight is renewable energy. And uh, it's a simple question with a very broad way of approaching it. But quite simply, uh, what has been California's history with renewable energy, either uh, as a leader or, or kind of following along the lines of other states, uh, I honestly don't know too much about California's history with renewable energy. So whether from a, uh, uh, a government-imposed perspective or from the private sector, what is California's history with that sort of thing? And then what is California's future with renewable energy? David Vogel? Well, California has been on the cutting edge of renewable energy. Uh, it has the most strict renewable energy mandates. Half of all household solar installations in the United States are in the state of California. Um, it has very ambitious goals. Uh, it's promoted uh, electric cars, for example, and Tesla, et cetera. So California has the largest, one of the largest wind plants in the United States, largest renewable energy in terms of solar. So California has been pushing the envelope very, very much on renewable energy. It remains to be seen how successful it can be and how renewable it can become uh, while retaining its high level of economic and population growth. But um, California has certainly played a leadership role um, on renewable energy. Though interesting enough, it began not because of the environment or climate change, but as a, as a concern that California was too vulnerable to oil and natural gas prices and was, would be a way of stabilizing the, uh, the California energy system. David Vogel, sometimes I I hear the argument that California is only, what, 1% of global emissions, California could go to zero, doesn't really matter, right. so why are we bothering with all this? Because California can't solve it, so why bother? Yeah, no, I think that's, an, I think that's a, an important question, and it's a big mystery. Why does California do all these things, knowing, in fact, that even if it disappeared off the face of the earth, uh, the, the rate of climate change um, you know, would not be would significantly affected? I think the key is that California has linked its climate change initiatives to other concrete benefits. So if you think about the promotion of electric cars or more energy-efficient cars, those cars are also less polluting. So they deliver health benefits to Californians. Um, renewable energy is a major source of employment in California. The cap and trade system has been distributed, a lot of its wealth has been distributed uh, to low income communities to improve energy efficiency. So um, if you think about California's appliance standards, refrigerators, um, these have a, you know, affect climate change, but also save people an enormous amount of money. California is the only state which has grown significantly while energy efficiency per capita has not change. So there are a lot of secondary benefits that come from California's climate change initiatives that would make sense even if climate change was a hoax.
Right, and, and TVs use a lot less energy. Yeah, now the computers and cell phones, et cetera, right. Right. David Vogel, where's an example where California has not been a leader? We've been here congratulating ourselves as Californians happily. <laughs> um, but I think of groundwater management. California was the last state in the West to put meters and require farmers to know how much water they're sucking out of the ground mm-hmm. and pumping. You know, we say we're a leader, but that California, you know, after the red states of Arizona, purple state of Colorado, it's the red state of Nevada, et cetera. So where are other places where California is not a leader? Certainly water management is a clear example. I mean, no state has dammed so many rivers, built so many reservoirs, created such an enormous infrastructure um, to, to meet its water needs. Um, so water is one example area where I think um, California has been a leader in the negative way. It's been No state has transformed its natural environment environment to make water accessible as California has. And then I think is a, um, one of the most serious shortcomings, and it comes out of the very democratic, which is people who live in California um, want access to water, and companies want access to water. Everyone's on one side. Um, and as a result, um, you have this enormously transformed aquatic environment. Um, I think part of that is a function of the fact that uh, God did not bless California when it came to water resources. We have a Mediterranean climate, which means it doesn't rain for most of the year. We have to store water, and all the water is up on the, in the northern, you know, in the western um, part of the and uh, northern part of the state. And everyone lives on the coast and in Southern California. We got to transport it. So. That's been a real problem. Um, and I think cars are also the Achilles heel of California. Um, you know, we drive more, we have more and more cars. Um, you know, they're a serious problem and no one has quite figured out any way of, uh, of, um, of substituting our enormous dependence on, on automobile transportation. And by the way, the other area where California, I think, has lag and it's, is its low rate of taxation on, um, on, on oil drilling in California. We have a incredibly low taxes. We get almost no revenue from all the oil produced in California for some bizarre reason. That could be a big source of revenue. That I think is another major shortcoming of California, particularly yeah. affecting climate change. No wellhead tax in California. May I add one thing? The idea that we shut down nuclear is a huge impact in the world. And it was done in state government. I was in state government at the time overseeing the Energy Commission. And uh, when you wonder, well, why does the oil industry have such clout? They kind of run government, special interests. And uh, the fact that we were able to shut down nuclear is an unbelievable accomplishment. Though some people would say that's carbon-free energy and say that that was a mistake. Huey Johnson, we're getting toward the end. You've been in this a long time, you know, since the, the 60s. Uh, are we making progress? To, are you hopeful? Or you guys have some dark moments where you think, we're not doing it fast enough? Well, things have to change if we're going to make it. And I am still have been around a long time at this stuff, 50 years, and uh, we've made some excellent progress. But we still haven't solved a big problem like water, for instance, or energy. But nonetheless, we've got beautiful big windmills whirling around up there as signal to the world. And um, if we could do something about controlling population, I, I would say we've got a huge bright future. Ignoring it is a disaster. Jason Mark, I believe you've made some personal choices along that line. In terms Which, of uh, population, you decided you only, only one oh, child. Oh, thanks, Greg. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, uh, <laughs> still, 
I hope my partner's listening. Uh, <laughs> uh, I personally would, would prefer to stay with one and done. Um, I would say that's still an open conversation with my family, but I think for reasons of sustainability, I'm, I, I love my daughter and she's a gift and a blessing in my life, but um, I'm, I'm happy with one. David Vogel, are we making enough progress? Are we getting on a hopeful note here? I don't think we're making enough progress, but I think we should be, we should be pleased and impressed and gratified with how far we've come. I mean, this is the fifth largest economy in the world, okay? Growing more rapidly than almost any other state. And, it made, and the quality of its environment, the trees, the coast, the air, this is incredibly precious and impressive. And given the, the, the level of economic and population growth of this state, the extent to which it looks and, and is such an attractive environment nowadays uh, in 2018 is, I think, a miracle. I can't speak for the future, but through the present, it's a very impressive accomplishment. Greg Dalton has been talking about the push to protect the environment in California and beyond with Huey Johnson, founder of the Trust for Public Land and former California Secretary of Natural Resources. He currently runs the Resource Renewal Institute. Jason Mark is editor of Sierra Magazine and author of the book Satellites in the High Country, Searching for the Wild in the Age of Man. And David Vogel is author of the new book California Greening, How the Golden State Became an Environmental Leader. He's Professor Emeritus of Business and Politics at the University of California, Berkeley. To hear all our Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast at our website, climateone.org, where you'll also find photos, video clips, and more. If you like the program, please let us know by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And join us next time for another conversation about energy, economy, and the environment. Climate One is a project of the Commonwealth Club of California. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. The audio engineers are Mark Kirshner and Justin Norton. Annie Chelsea, Devin Strolovich, and Claire Schoen edit the show. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Climate One is produced in association with KQED Public Radio.